the region is also just an interesting lens through which to start asking questions about how we practice today, how we practice globally, how we move beyond these kinds of oppositions between, you know, local and global tradition and modernity. Welcome to Archonnect Sessions One to One. I'm Amelia, and this week I'm speaking with architect and dean of Columbia's GSAP, Amal Andraus. In the past few years at Columbia, Amal has been researching how the so-called Arab city is represented in the urban discourse, finding that it was often reduced to simplified, mythic, or fetishized models. She has since published her findings, alongside pieces by Bernard Corey, Reinhold Martin, Isle Weissman, and others, in The Arab City, a book that she hopes will be an accessible introduction to the complex and storied reality of cities in the Arab world. The book comes out in June. So Amal, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We last interviewed you in the fall of last year for our Dean's List series. And in particular in that series, we always like to ask how the relationship between practice and academia comes into play when you're in that position of leadership at a, at a school of architecture. And in particular, asking about how the role of a practitioner can kind of influence or should influence the role of an academic when they're occupying both roles. And you had responded at that time, about a year after you had been um, positioned at Columbia as the dean, that you felt that it wasn't so necessary or particularly significant that a dean also be a practicing ar architect, but that being an architect who supports practice and discourse and kind of just holds those two things as not necessarily in opposition to one another is the more important thing. I was wondering now, after being at Columbia for a little bit longer and getting more invested, if your opinion on that or your thoughts on that had changed at all or, or particularly um, developed? Yeah, it's a great question. Actually, no, I, I still feel very strongly that uh, it's not the important aspect is not for a dean necessarily to be, you know, either a theoretician or a practitioner, but rather someone who supports both and uh, very strongly and supports the kind of conversation between the two. I think there have been times where what happens in practice is really informed by what happens in academia in terms of discourse and exploration. And then at other times, it has felt like what was happening, you know, in the quote unquote world out there was so much more radical and complex and that it kind of, you know, pushed what was happening in schools. And so I think that dialogue is really critical. And now I see both happening at the same time where we are no longer just sort of in a moment of awe in terms of, you know, questions of global practice or speed or you know, all these things now have become, for better or for worse, a given. And so it's an interesting moment for schools at once to continue to engage those forms of practice, but also, you know, provide a space for some distance and reflection. And so I think the two are really necessary and and uh, kind of the sort of tensions and uh, uh, sort of the, the tensions and the exchanges are really both critical and productive. And you, of course, were at Columbia prior to holding the deanship and at, simultaneously throughout and continually, you are still working with WorkAC and you're a partner there. So I'm wondering if the course of your work at WorkAC has, has made any particular impact on your practice as a dean, whether there's any particular interplay there. 
Well, I like that you think I'm still at work AC on a regular basis. <laughs> the, I have to, I must confess uh, the past two years have been really unbelievably intense in terms of the school and, and exciting in that sense, but I am making my way back. I, I think that, you know, as a, as a, if I speak of just my, our own practice, you know, we, we have uh, always embraced uh, kind of, let's say, speculative work and research and, uh, and kind of a certain level of, um, you know, freedom in uh, what we engage uh, with. And so I think that I really cherish that. And so in that sense, I think that level of freedom is something that I very much want to continue to support at the school. It's definitely in the DNA of the school. And it's something that I've you know, wanted to continue to to kind of support and encourage while at the same time, you know, being quite embedded in the sort of urgent issues of our time. So the two sort of, for me, are not in contradiction and rather have to exist together or, or that the, the pleasure lies in their existence together, let's say. And recently you have put out this book, The Arab City, with Nora Akawi and Caitlin Blanchfield. And so this book in particular, how does that kind of fall into your interest in research as both a practitioner and a academic? So the book is really the result of a number of investigations. One is the studios that I led uh, over three years on the question of architecture and representation, in particular through the, the project of the embassy as a typology that sort of really highlights some of these questions. And my seminar on Arab cities looking at contemporary architectural and urban production in, in the region, as well as situating that production within a, a longer history, you know, starting with the fall of the Ottoman Empire. And as a result of both studio and, and seminar, we, Noura and I, who Noura is the Studio X director in Amman, uh, organized this conference and it brought together our, you know, a wide range of scholars, architects, historians, artists, and as well as simply faculty from across campus, from the school, to look at these questions. Uh, and so the conference resulted in the book. And I think that for me, the book operates at a number of levels. One is is just the kind of convening that one can do to you know, try to bring a number of voices together to open up new ways of understanding a context and a, and a history. I think it, it expands, for me, the kind of, let's say, architectural canon, you know, while, you know, the school has been engaged with the question of global practice and for some time now, I think that now we're kind of digging deeper where we're also engaging with the question of history and, you know, what histories do we teach? How do we teach? How do we expand the references that we use? So it's, it's both a kind of his project about expanding our references historically, as well as understanding the context, uh, the contemporary context in a more complex way than sometimes it's portrayed. After the Arab City Conference, we've had a similar conference on uh, called Other Desires, the African City. We have now an exhibition at the school on the Iraqi architect Rifat uh, Chadirji. It opened on the day that we heard of Zaha's passing, so it was quite uh, moving because uh, Chadirji, of course, is one of those modernist architects that engaged sort of questions of modernity and at a time of incredible artistic and intellectual boom in Baghdad, which was kind of Zaha's childhood in a way. Anyway, so, so I think the school is, is also operating at that level of expanding our references, really, and kind of moving away from 
single Western narratives of, uh, you know, of architecture, really. Hmm. At least the introduction for the book makes it very clear that one of the core issues that it kind of sees as why it's even existing, why you needed to make this book and and, and run the research, was that there was this unfair uh, reductionist and often stereotypical representation of what, quote unquote, the Arab city meant or was or is. And that part of the reason for the book existing was to not only help dispel that, but also just inform the, as you said, the complexities of what it actually could mean or or does mean to be an Arab city. And I was wondering, what are those kind of stereotypes or overly reductive models that you feel the book wanted to kind of dispel? I think that a number of things. One is, I think, the, the notion of uh, Arab city is obviously strategic. I mean, I think no city can be reduced to a kind of ethnic or, or racial qualification. But I think that, for me, the notion of Arab is a way to see, to kind of separate from the kind of Arab Islamic or the notion of, you know, Islamic cities and to claim a different history, which is the history of, you know, two centuries of the region's engagement with modernity and, you know, Arab progressive thought that starts with people like uh, Khalil Gibran, who wrote The Prophet. And, you know, there's a kind of long history of intellectual thought and and also artistic, of which someone like Shadirji was part of, that doesn't exist in the narratives that we hear today. So when architects and especially international architects, you know, land in places like the Gulf, I think the, you know, there isn't, uh, the, the references become very sort of reductive of, uh, you know, metaphors and uh, meanings about, uh, you know, whether it's the desert or the oasis or the, you know, Islamic pattern or, you know, there there isn't the sense of the complexity and the tensions between the kind of old centers and the new centers, old centers being, you know, Beirut, Cairo, Baghdad, Damascus, and and the kind of shift of power that has occurred. So, so it's 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 a call for, you know, I like to say, you know, Robert Venturi wrote complexity and contradiction, not cliches. Uh, and so, I think as architects, we can engage with much more complex set of um, uh, narratives and uh, historical references than the ones we have engaged in recent, uh, let's say, the, the last one or two decades. I also want to ask specifically about the cover design for the book. It's more or less a black type on a white cover. However, the text itself is put on these different faces of paper that are skewed at at, um, rotations of, say, like 90 degrees or say maybe 45 degrees. You have a square and then a 45 degree turn and then another square on top of it slightly smaller. And that represent that includes the text of the title as well as the authors. I'm wondering if you can explain a little bit about the thought process behind that design and, and why exactly you decided to have it be that? Yeah, so first I, I should say that this is really uh, Neil Donnelly's design who did a fantastic, uh, he's a graphic designer who the school have been collaborating with now on a number of books for our publication office, Columbia Books on Architecture and the City. And so I think Neil, I don't want to overinterpret what he tried to do, but he wanted it to be at once sort of stark and simple, but also, I think, actually engage in a complex way, three-dimensionality uh, or the play between the two-dimension and the three-dimension that you find uh, at times in, in architecture. And there's a sense of deconstructing and reconstructing our understanding of this question, I think. But you would have to ask him. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough, yeah. You know, part of it is putting the, you know, taking the pieces apart and putting them together 
part of it is a kind of 2D, 3D play. And uh, that's how I read it. <laughs> There's also references throughout the, the book, but one of the core ones that surfaces is making historical references to the process in Beirut after the Civil War ended in 1990, the reconstruction of their downtown and issues dealing with European colonial urban heritage and post-revolution cities and displacement and things that were still obviously are still issues currently. I'm wondering now and, and when you were doing the research for the book, how did you try or did you try to situate that example in, in the current context of, of also com perhaps comparing it to what's going on in Syria? It's an interesting question. I think that you know, the story of the kind of reconstruction of the, of the downtown of Beirut is a sort of very uh, telling story in terms of like the future of the region where for me it ties to, you know, some of the questions we're exploring at the school around preservation, cultural heritage, the question of, you know, kind of editing history or, you know, turning a city that is or, or a part of a city that is all about the kinds of complexity that I think what I'm claiming the Arab city to be uh, or, or what, you know, a number of authors in the book claim it to be, you know, much more complex, much more layered, incredibly uh, multi-ethnic, multi-religious, you know, hubs of cosmopolitanism and intellectual exchanges and turning that density, which was embodied by a density of very different periods of architecture and turning that into something that becomes a kind of city of icons, where the icons become religious icons. So suddenly the narrative is one of, you know, religious, you know, kind of a, a sort of a, a sort of coming together of the different religions, which the, you know, Beirut was never about that. And so I, I think that what's interesting about the process of reconstruction is how a kind of national identity gets transformed through uh, destruction. And for me, that ties to, you know, Palmyra, let's say, and the, the sort of attack on what in fact was at the time, if you think of Palmyra, a very cosmopolitan and, you know, multi-layered kind of hybrid architecture. It's not purely Roman. And, and I think that for it to become a site of um, attack and demolition is, is in a way somewhat similar, where you're trying to change the narrative of, a, of, let's say, a nation by editing out its architecture. I can't speak to the destruction right now in Syria, because I think it's probably we don't know enough. Although, you know, we have here at the school, someone like Laura Kurgan, whose project Conflict Urbanism is looking at trying to, you know, trying to already map out what's happening in Aleppo and, and trying to kind of layer questions of climate change through her center, uh, center for Spatial Research. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I think that what's, you know, what's interesting for me is how looking at, you can look at architecture and the built environment, both to understand a larger context, but you can also sort of see how, you know, the larger context is really embedded and embodied in, in architecture, let's say. Also, it seems to me significant that you were born in Beirut and that you would have a, a strong personal connection to that area in particular when considering these ideas. But I don't want to be presumptuous, so instead I'll rephrase that as a question. Is that something that came into play when you were writing the book or when you were editing the book? Oh, yes, yes, of course. I mean, I I think I reveal, <laughs> I declare, you know, in the introduction that it, it it was partly a personal project. But beyond the, I mean, what's interesting is for me is how you use the personal to kind of expand beyond. And I, I think that 
the region is also just an interesting lens through which to start asking questions about how we practice today, how we practice globally, how we move beyond these kinds of oppositions between you know, local and global tradition and modernity, you know, which are all kind of constructed oppositions. And sometimes as architects, I think either we're invited to fall back on these oppositions or we sort of use them with a little bit of a disingenuous earnestness, let's say. And so it's both very much about the region, but it's also a lens through which we can ask larger questions. And I think it's been really interesting to think about, okay, well, if you take those questions and then look at this question of quote unquote, you know, African cities, you know, we, we can start seeing some parallels and et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's also a kind of a frame, let's say, or a set of frames. And not to try to pull too much on your past experiences when before you even knew you were going to work on this kind of research, but you do also have experience living in Saudi Arabia and France, Canada, Netherlands, and now, of course, New York. And I would think that there might be a, a, an architectural discourse around what the Arab city might mean that would be very different depending on which vantage point within those different countries you're currently occupying. Did that internationalism and that opportunity to be in those different countries at, at times in your life play into your conception of how the Arab city would also be construed as a stereotype or as an idea? I think that what has been interesting in terms of living in all, or growing up in all these various places is, of course, that one always ends up feeling like you can be inside and outside at the same time. So understanding that, you know, there's no single perspective and you're always looking at something from, from a different vantage points. So that, that's something that I, I, the kind of relational thinking that I think, in fact, we're trying to do at the school. And I think if you speak to faculty and, and the diverse students here, you, you know, that kind of relational thinking is very, very strong and that sense of diversity of perspectives. And um, so I, I would say that that is one a result of probably having, you know, had a kind of, let's say, cosmopolitan upbringing. But in, in terms of the actual constructions of the Arab city, I mean, that goes back to, you know, people like uh, Janet Abulahud, who was an incredible scholar, who, you know, traced these constructions, you know, across kind of French Orientalism and into American. So, uh, you know, there is um, a kind of East to West, let's say, mirror that happens that is probably quite common, you know, or shared between the US and, and Europe in terms of looking at the so-called East. But in this age of, you know, the quote-unquote global, I think, you know, we're moving beyond these kinds of divisions. And so that's part of the exploration as well. So I also want to ask about your professional and perhaps relationship to Zaha Hadid as this idea of the Arab architect. There was an interview of, of only in 2014, relatively recently, where the late Zaha Hadid references a frustration at being called by journalists or just by any type of, in any type of press material, so-called British architect, because her practice is located and has always been located in London, even though she has always, in her own description, identified as Iraqi and Arab and how she felt that that should be, if needing a, another descriptor in front of just architect, that that would be one of them, or that would be the appropriate one, Arab or, or Iraqi. And in a New York Times write-up after her death, you were quoted in a piece referencing that you also kind of understood that she was in that world, and she was needing to have to kind of address that while also dealing with that kind of public misinterpretation or this public mismatching of always wanting to assign you know, certain identifiers. 
I'm wondering, though, whether you feel her work as this incredibly prominent, world-renowned architect is also necessarily part of the construction of the Arab city, regardless of where she's building her work. Um, that's a very interesting question. Well, first of all, I think Zahra Hadid would, you know, should be just an architect first and foremost. I think there were a lot of, you know, she's a woman architect, she's a this architect, she's a that architect, and we, you know, you would never have had that with a man or or or, or, or someone who was, you know, a Western architect. I mean, so a lot of the notion of the identifier, I think, is a, is a problem. But you know, given that you've highlighted the fact that you know she was sensitive to that legacy i think you know in her own words i think that's i i didn't know she she said that but i guess the question is like why should she be called the british architect i that was her comment mm-hmm. i guess i think that i don't know that she in particular contributed actually to the the only thing i could say is that you know i think that the, it's a question in terms of let's say what the recent kind of architectural projects in, let's say, the new centers in Dubai and Abu Dhabi, et cetera, have done to, I think there was maybe a missed opportunity or today we can look back at that era and say, you know, maybe there's an opportunity to be more complex about understanding the kind of powers at play in the region. I would just put it that way, that the kind of, hyper spectacle of these kind of emerging centers while older ones are being completely destroyed is a question that we can reflect on as architects today, I think would be my position. And so in conjunction with this text, The Arab City, for those who are interested but would perhaps want some supplemental reading, what are some texts or some pieces that you might recommend those people reading either before heading to the Arab city or or after, but just in conjunction with any any pieces or reading in particular? No, I think that's what's great about the book is that it's very accessible. And, uh, and I think that all the essays are, you know, bring with them the right amount of references without overpowering and so I would I would say that rather than reading before, I would say, you know, I would encourage people who are interested to read it as an introduction, let's say, and then, you know, use it as, a, again, a lens to explore further either some of the architect's works or if you, some of the scholars such as Timothy Mitchell, who's done so much around these questions of representation and today capitalization. And so I, I would use it more as a kind of intro text to open up a series of inquiries. Excellent. Well, Amal, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I really love talking with you. Well, thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Archonnect Sessions one-to-one with Amal Andraus. Danilo Voinov edits the podcast and Matt Skillings composed our music. Myself and Paul Petrunia are the producers of one-to-one. New episodes of one-to-one come out every Monday. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Google Play Music. And if you like the podcast, please consider leaving us a review. You can follow us on Twitter through at ArcSessions or email us at connect at Thanks again for listening to One to One.